This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. As Patrice said at the outset, my name is Jim Kearney, uh, and it is my great pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest. Joseph McBride is professor at the School of Cinema at San Francisco State University, a screenwriter, a film critic, a film historian. Uh, he has written a number of books on the art of screenwriting, on film, uh, on film history. Um, excuse me. He, uh, he has written a number of books on the art of screenwriting, on film and filmmakers, uh, including three books on Orson Welles. Uh, we are delighted to have him. Uh, I am particularly thrilled to have him here with us. Uh, please, could you join me in welcoming Joseph McBride? Thank you for having me. It's great to be able to inaugurate this series, a wonderful series. And thank you, Jim. And um, Jim told me this is his favorite Shakespearean film, I think, too. Huh? That's right. Pretty much, yeah. It's, I, well, this is Wells' favorite film, uh, and, and I think his best film. His greatest performance, certainly, as an actor. And um, uh, I just remember back to, you know, it's so nice to see a good crowd coming to see this film, because for a long time you couldn't see this film at all. You had to get a bootleg copy from Brazil or someplace. And it was terribly um, dumped onto the American market. And I think back to when I was a young guy starting to write about Orson Welles in 1966. 60, 66, I discovered Citizen Kane in a film class that totally changed my life. And 67, this film uh, reached Chicago. I was living in Madison, going to school. And... Um, it was going to play for three nights at a place called the Town Underground, and the theater then turned into a porno theater right after that. <laughs> so I figured this might be my last chance ever to see this film, so I took a Greyhound bus to Chicago, and I read the plays on the bus, which really helps, you know, if you know the plays, it helps enhance the film. And so I sat there three, three uh, screenings in a row in one night. It was just wonderful, just a sublime experience, and... What, I, what struck me was, um, this was near the University of Chicago, so the audience was about half intellectuals from the University of Chicago and half old winos from off the street. And they all got it. They all enjoyed it equally. The old winos just loved this film because Falstaff is sort of the king of the winos, you know. And uh, the intellectuals got it. But, the, you know, Shakespeare, uh, Wells makes Shakespeare popular. And that was something he always believed in deeply. Shakespeare was his touchstone throughout his career. He called him the staff of life. And from childhood, he played um, Shakespeare. In, in, um, as, as a kid, he did his own productions. And then uh, in boarding school in uh, Illinois, he, he, he did a, a sort of a precursor of this called Winter of Our Discontent, where he combined uh, several Shakespeare plays into one. And and then he did a big production called Five Kings in 1939, where he played uh, Falstaff. Uh, he was only 23, I guess, and uh, Burgess Meredith played Prince Hal. And it was a notorious disaster. Everything went wrong. And Five Kings tells you, you know, how ambitious the production was. He combined a lot of plays into one. It's very similar to this. It was kind of like a dry run for this. And that drove him to Hollywood because it lost so much money. And uh, he later said he wished he had stayed in the theater. His w first wife said, you should have stayed in the theater, and he felt he would have had a more productive life if he had. But on the other hand, we'd be deprived of a lot of great films. 
And um, then he did this in 1960 in uh, Belfast and Dublin. And he got Keith Baxter, a young Welsh actor who plays Prince Hal, who's really great in this film, I think. And he got him to play uh, Hal. And um, he told Keith that he would cast him in the film when he made the film. And he lived up to his promise. Keith was washing dishes when he got hired to do this film. And he's just... I told him, I got to know him in Spain. We had a, a Wells conference in Barcelona. And uh, Keith was there. He's a wonderful guy, still living in England. Um, he directs plays now, and he acts. And, and um, I said, you and Agnes Moorhead and The Magnificent Ambersons, I think, are the two greatest non-Wells performances in Wells's work. And he said, well, John Gilgood. And I said, oh, okay, John Gilgood, yeah. John Gilgood is so great in this movie, too. Um, but Keith Baxter is just marvelous, and uh, uh, Wells loved him, and, and he became kind of like Wells' assistant. He played something like 15 parts in the film. He, he would put on different costumes, and he, if Wells needed to direct the extras, he'd put Keith Baxter in a costume and have him lead the extras around, and he'd say, follow El Rey, follow El Rey. This was shot in Spain, and... Um, Wells uh, got Spanish money. It was financed by a couple of banks in, in Madrid. And uh, so it has that kind of medieval look. Wells loved the Middle Ages. He didn't like the modern world, so he loved Spain. And he shot it in uh, various little ancient villages. And he shot 30% of the film in a church in Cardona. And we took a field trip to Cardona on, at this conference. And Keith Baxter was with me all day. And it was just wonderful to walk around this church, this ancient church. It, it's, it, it stems from about 1300, I think. And it's just like it is in the film. But Wells uh, adapted it for a number of uh, locations. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the throne and, and things were at the church. And it's a, a very uh, striking location up on a hilltop and really wonderful. And uh, so, anyway, but. but I think of how hard it was to see Wells films back in the day. You really had to get on a bus, and now, now you have DVDs. And uh, This finally came out in a good version from Criterion a couple of years ago. And uh, you see the Spanish Film Archive uh, helped restore this film, and Criterion made it even better. This looks really good. This is an excellent print. Um, for a long time, the film was unavailable because of rights issues, which happen, happens with a lot of Wells films. And... But now you can buy the Criterion Blu-ray, and I'd recommend you do that. And it's got some extras, and, and I did an interview about it for it. I, I want to go back to that bus. So you get on a bus, and you go to Chicago, yeah. and you watch this three, three times in one night. Yeah. And did you know that there would be distribution problems? Oh, the yeah. That's the, the funny end of the story. Um, you know, it, it you know, played three days. And in New York, Bosley Crowther was this idiot critic of the New York Times, the worst critic around. And he hated Orson Welles for whatever reason, and he panned this film when it played at the Cannes Film Festival in 1966. It won two awards, the 20th Anniversary Award and a Technical Prize, and he gave it a bad review, and that scared off distributors in America. And finally, a little company called Peppercorn Wormser picked it up, a guy named Carl Peppercorn, and opened it in New York, and he, he put some ads in the paper and you know, tried to get it you know, running in New York, and Bosley Crowther panned it again and killed the film, basically. And um, Paul and Kale gave it a good review. I gave it a good review a little later, and a few you know, a few people did, but it basically died. And it, and I called... I was 19, and I had a lot of hood spots, so I called Carl Peppercorn in New York, and I complained. 
how come you're not distributing this film more around the country, like, uh, you know, in smaller towns and university towns? And he was that this kid would be bugging him about this, you know. But he admitted it was Bosley Crowther who, who turned him off to... It made him think there's no money to be made from this film, and, and basically that was the end of that film. And then it, it vanished for a long time. It was well-received in Europe at the time. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, the yeah they love Wells in Europe. It. Like when Wells died, uh, the American obituary said he was a has-been, and you know people thought of him as an old fat guy who did wine commercials and stuff. And, <laughs> but he was working... You know, I knew him the last 15 years of his life, and he was shooting films every day. And he, he shot a lot of films. Unfortunately, not all are finished. But he was always working and innovating. And, and the New York Times obituary said he had been inactive as a director for the last several years. Which they actually had to run a correction. It's just so wrong. And then they got Vincent Canby to do a Sunday piece, kind of focusing on his achievements. But in Europe, like Liberation, uh, the newspaper ran 20 pages on him the day after he died. You know, he was, they appreciate him in Europe more than they do here. It's a classic case of the prophet without honor in his own country. And he's still undervalued, you know. I mean, filmmakers love him. Students love him when I teach courses on him. Young people get him. He's, he's, that's, what, that's what appealed to me at first about him when I saw Kane. This is the guy who was 24 who made this amazing film. And I thought, wow, he's a young guy from Wisconsin, and, and uh, you could do anything. And uh, so he's inspiring for for anybody who wants to make films. And not only uh, did you know him, but you worked with him as an actor. Yeah, this is a Walter Mitty dream come true. <laughs> I actually acted in a Wells film yesterday. I mean, this is his career is still going on. Um, in 1970, I started writing a book on him in 1966, and I was almost done in 1970, and I went to Hollywood to interview John Ford, who I was then writing a book about, my favorite of all directors and Wells' favorite. And uh, I literally arrived on the last day of Ford's career. That's another story, but um, he retired in the course of our interview. But while I was there, I had no idea that Wells was in America because he was always off in Europe. You'd see some little item in Variety that he was doing a film in Spain or something. And so I called Peter Bogdanovich, who was a young critic and uh, budding director at the time who I emulated and uh, he said I'm on the other line with Orson would you hold on <laughs> I thought whoa my god and so I held on and he said Orson would like to meet you like you to call him tomorrow at 5.30 so he gave me a phone number and I called Wells and uh, I had no idea he was in LA but he had just come back to America where he lived for the rest of his life until 1985 and um the first thing he said to me was, uh, we're about to start shooting a film, would you like to be in it? And I was stunned because I'd never acted in my life, except being an altar boy, I guess, is a form of acting. But it's like a Robert Brisson form of acting, where you, you don't have any expressions, and you have to just keep repeating the same dialogue in a monotone, and you have your back to the audience, you know, but that, that was my acting experience. But so Wells put me in this film, and, and I went over to his house, and I spent three hours talking to him about things. And one thing he told me that was kind of heartbreaking but funny was uh, Charlton Heston, who um, made it possible for him to do Touch of Evil, was, you know, really admired Wells. And Wells said he had just received a telegram from Heston saying, I've always wanted to do a film of the Henry IV and Henry V uh, saga, and I think you'd be perfect as Falstaff. Would you like to do it? And Wells, he started laughing, but you could see that the laughter died in his throat because Heston didn't even know that he had made this film. You know, it was, it was sad. 
And um, so we had a great talk, and then uh, by the end of the week, I was acting in a Wells film called The Other Side of the Wind, the first day of shooting. I play a young film critic named Mr. Pister, and it's, it's a satire of Hollywood and, and what we call the Easy Rider period now when the studios were collapsing and the young people were taking over, and it was a big turning point in Hollywood. So uh, John Huston is the lead. He plays an old director who comes back from Europe to make a comeback in the new Hollywood and he can't finish his film for a variety of reasons, and he feels very bitter and suicidal, and he's surrounded by a lot of younger people, and Wells put a lot of uh, people playing versions of themselves, you know, kind of uh, caricatures or spoofs of themselves, and so I played a version of myself as an earnest young film critic following Houston around, asking him silly film buff questions, irritating him throughout the film, and... Um, so I spent six years acting in that film. The film takes place in one night, but it took six years to shoot, and I, you know, I aged. And uh, but you know, uh, it was an amazing experience. That was my film school, basically working with Wells, and I thought he was the greatest actors director in the history of film. And he liked to have a mixture of people in the cast. He, uh, some of the greatest actors in the world, and then. Uh, Non-actors. He liked to mix in non-actors or people playing themselves, and you know, kind of a, a potpourri of people. And uh, so I got to see him directing all kinds of uh, characters, like John Huston and Mercedes McCambridge and uh, Edmund O'Brien and you know, um, Susan Strasberg. They're all wonderful. But um, the secret to being a great director of actors is you direct each person differently. You know, you you understand their psyche and what they need and what they don't need and how to handle them. A bad director will direct everybody the same way or scream at them, and Wells never did that. He treated actors really well because he thought actors were the most important people in film. I have to say, though, the exception was me. He bullied me for three years because he thought that was a good way to get that performance out of me as this kind of uh, uptight young guy, you know, running around trying to fit in. And... Um, Finally, after three years, one of the crew said, you know, Orson was complimenting your acting in the rushes, and he had never said anything. Well, actually, I have a tape of the first day of shooting. He did say some nice things the first day, but it kind of went, you know, through my ears. But when, when I was told that he actually thought I was good, I relaxed for the next three years and had a good time. <laughs> and So anyway, yesterday I was down in L.A. looping some of my lines for that film. Um, the, the sound is in good shape, but we were improving on some dialogue, and so I got to uh, redo some lines, including the first day of shooting when I really, you know, never acted before, so I was really happy to be able to get a chance to improve my line readings. We did the same lines, but I, I think, I, you know, I did them a little better. But it was a very strange experience, one of the weirdest experiences of my life to act in a film 48 years later. <laughs> that film is in the works, finally. It's a long, long history of... Um, it was left uncompleted when he died for a lot of reasons. As you know, I, I've written a lot about it, and other people have too. And uh, there were terrible legal and financial problems connected with it that were finally solved. And it's coming out, and it's being edited, and it'll be at the Cannes Film Festival probably. And I'm in a documentary about it too that will also be at Cannes called "They'll Love Me When I'm Dead," which is what Wells used to say toward the end of his life. And um, I'm one of the last surviving cast members because I, I was young and, and all the older people are gone. But there are a few of us around, so we were interviewed for the documentary and stuff, and that's going to be fun. 
And it's uh, Netflix put up the money to finish uh, Other Side of the Wind. And I tried and tried for years to get studios interested in financiers, and nobody would do it. And uh, Well, we got Showtime at one point. We was going to do it. But then Netflix put up $5 million to finish it, which is wonderful. It's yeah, hugely exciting that The Other Side of the Wind is finally going to see the light of day. In May, I think it's coming out. Yeah, hopefully right? at the Cannes Film Festival in May. And then later, you know, it'll be on streaming... You know, I think Wells would be thrilled at this new thing of streaming movies in 150 countries simultaneously. People all around the world can see his film. He never had that kind of distribution, you know. It used, you know, he would have five theaters here and five there, and that's it. But now the whole world can see his film. And then there'll be, you know, DVD and Blu-ray and all that kind of thing. And as you say, his career is sort of, you know, live and doing well, right? He keeps yeah, more things thriving. coming out now than, than, yeah. than have come out in a long time. Yeah, it helps when the artist is not around to cause <laughs> trouble, you know. Uh, it's like Van Gogh sold one painting in his lifetime, and now, you know, they go for $400 million. Now, with things like this coming out, the other side of the wind, uh, looking at this restored Chimes at Midnight, I feel like we're getting a better sense uh, of Wells' career as a filmmaker now than perhaps we ever have. For a long time, I think there was a myth you know, think of it as the, the sort of the Citizen Kane myth, yeah. uh, that Orson Welles arrived on the scene, uh, he was this kind of wunderkind, he gave us this sort of perfect film as his first film, mm-hmm. uh, and then the rest of his life he never sort of lived up to that promise, right? He sort of uh, wasted his talents. You tell a very different story about Welles. Yeah, my third book on him, uh, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, I called it, came out about 10 years ago. Uh, I, I started trying to explicate his later career that is really the least known part of his life, and I was around, and, and, I, and I've seen all the, almost all the, you know, unfinished work and everything, and so I write about it. It's partly a reportage, partly memoir, partly critical study, but I realized to, to make people understand why he was doing these films, which were home movies, literally, they were mostly shot in his home, and he had a little crew of, you know, loyal young men and women who worked for peanuts and and slaved away for him and he just loved getting up and shooting film that was his thrill and he didn't in a way didn't care if it ever got shown um, but he uh, that stuff uh, you know in America if it's not commercial if it's not at the multiplex it doesn't exist you know and so people don't even know about this all these things he did so I wanted to tell that story and and uh, showed that he was active and in a fertile creative period, striking out in new directions. But to do that, I had to go back to the beginning of his career and tell his career over again from a different angle. And I borrowed the theme from Douglas Gomery, who was a classmate of mine in Wisconsin, who's a film historian. He, he said, contrary to the conventional view, that Wells was a failed Hollywood filmmaker who had a chance and blew it and then you know, had to make a lot of low-budget films. He said Wells was always an independent filmmaker ahead of his time. There was nobody like that except Oscar Michaud, the early black filmmaker. And uh, so Wells was the pioneer for that whole thing. And independent filmmakers have a hard time, you know, because they're working outside the system. And so Gomery theorized that Wells had the resources of a major studio briefly for a couple films, and then things started you know, inevitably, he and the studios didn't get along because he was not a commercial filmmaker. Uh, Jean Renoir said Wells was uh, an aristocrat in a commercial medium. I think that ca- that tells you everything. And he 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 would have loved to have had popular success. He, he he liked to bring Shakespeare to the masses, like on the radio and television. He would do Shakespeare on the Dean Martin program. He did a wonderful thing you can find on YouTube where he's making up his Falstaff on the Dean Martin show and 
doing a speech about wine, you know, the great speech, and it's just terrific. And uh, he did that on the radio, and um, uh, there's a fine book called Orson Welles' Shakespeare in Popular Culture by Michael Andragon. His theory is that Welles was, um, he loved highbrow art and he loved lowbrow art, like vaudeville and magic and things like that. What he didn't like was middlebrow art, and middlebrow respectable art is what wins Academy Awards and gets respect. But he had contempt for that kind of thing. And so Hollywood had contempt for him. And so uh, he, he thought bringing Shakespeare to the masses is a good thing, because Shakespeare in his day was a popular artist, and he appealed to the groundlings, you know, just like I say that the drunks, you know, the winos got Falstaff, you know, and, and um, he was not a highbrow artist. He was, he was a popular artist, and, and Wells' big dream was to make him popular again. And I thought this film, when I saw it the first time, I thought, geez, this film could really do well if they d- distributed it properly, but they didn't. And I remember when I was a kid, they would take us to see Laurence Olivier's Hamlet and things like that in theaters, you know, and I thought if schools would do that, the kids would enjoy the film. And I've shown this film to students, and they, they love it, you know. But he never had that opportunity. But now we do have DVDs and Blu-rays where you can watch all these things in your home. As you say, he had this sort of lifelong relationship with Shakespeare, um, and he kept returning to him. Now, this particular film, Chimes at Midnight, is an extraordinary adaptation. I think people are often surprised to learn uh, that he is incorporating so much material. Because the story unfolds so organically on screen, it feels very tight. Uh, but in fact, he's drawing from multiple plays, he's drawing from historical chronicles, he's really, you know, sort of creating something new here. Do you yeah. think it was important to him uh, to transform the material in this way? Yeah, he was notorious for doing that in the days of the Mercury Theater. One of the actors said, uh, when is this play going to open? And, and some guy, this is a Shakespeare play, and another actress said, when Orson finishes writing it. And he would combine freely, and, and there's a book of the screenplay of this, and he combined five plays, Henry IV, Part One and Two, Henry V, A Little of Richard II, and Part of Mary Wives of Windsor, where Falstaff dies. And he blended all that into a drama in which Falstaff becomes the main character, and he's not in the plays. Henry, uh, Prince Hal is. And, uh, but he, he thought Falstaff, he said, was the greatest conception of a good man in the, dra- in the world drama. He thought his faults were very minor. People loved to make fun of him for being a drunkard and a lecher and a glutton, but he, Wells thought, you know, who cares? But his virtues were very, very major. And he was opposed dramatically to Prince Hal, who Wells really portrays as a, I think, as a, pretty much of a villainous character. Although you really empathize with him, and I think my students have helped me understand that even though Wells uh, portrays Hal as, as a kind of Nixonian character, Machiavellian politician who betrays Falstaff, he keeps warning Falstaff he's going to betray him. But you, you kind of understand he has to do that. That's the tragedy of Prince Hal. To become king, he has to renounce his, his uh, dissolute past. This is really the story of the Bush family, this film. Uh, you know, the old man uh, kills his, helps kill his predecessor, uh, Richard II, uh, just like Poppy Bush. Was, I found out that he was involved in the assassination of President Kennedy, and I wrote a book about that. And... Uh, then he has a dissolute wastrel son who becomes king. And uh, busy's, his father says, busy getting minds with foreign quarrels. That's what Bush did with uh, the Iraq War. This is totally 
pointless, made-up war just to distract people from what was happening uh, domestically. And uh, it's a story that will be told over and over again in history in accents yet unknown, as they say. Uh, but it, but it's, it's a classic tale, and but it's a father and son story. And Wells said it's about a boy who has two fathers. There's the, the corrupt older father who he doesn't get along with, and the, the one he loves, Falstaff, who he has to betray. And betrayal is Wells' major theme and obsession throughout his entire body of work. If you look at the typical Wells film, or almost every Wells film, is about two men who love each other, and one betrays the other over and over again from Cain onward. And I thought about this long and hard, and I realized where this comes from. Wells, when he was a boy, well, he had certain betrayals. You know, his mother died when he was young, and his father died when he was young. But um, his father was a, a playboy, alcoholic, rich, kind of a fabulous character. But he died, drank himself to death in a hotel room in Chicago. And Wells uh, was persuaded by his... Uh, Roger Hill and his wife, who were kind of his guardians, to abandon his father in what we call tough love now. He said, I won't see you again until you stop drinking. And the old man's heart was broken, and he drank himself to death. And, and Wells actually claimed, he, he said, I killed my father. He wrote this late in life. And he claimed his father committed suicide. And the death certificate says he died of kidney and heart failure. But um, Wells swore that he committed suicide. And Wells felt incredibly guilty, or not incredibly, but actually very guilty, and he said, I don't believe in psychoanalysis and uh, uh, getting over your guilt. I think you should live with your guilt and accept it. And so guilt is a big theme in his body of work. And that's exactly what Hal does. He kills Falstaff by rejecting him. And uh, so that's the archetypal Wells story. And artists often kind of tell one story over and over again. And this is the purest example of that. And on this side of the wind, the film I'm in, uh, John Huston's character is like Falstaff and Peter Bogdanovich is Prince Hal and he betrays the old man. He loves him, but you know they kind of are at odds and uh, he keeps telling that story in different guises. That story about Wells and his father is heartbreaking. Yeah, it is, it is really heartbreaking. This, the, the final scene here, the rejection of Falstaff, it feels as if the entire film has been sort of geared toward bringing us to that moment. It's an incredibly affecting Scene. Yeah, that's probably the most moving scene in his work. Wells felt, I wrote a whole book about Wells as an actress, so I saw all the bad films that he acted in, and he was um, cravenly willing to compromise as an actor. He would do any, almost anything to make money as an actor, but he never compromised as a director, uh, unlike, say, John Huston, who would make schlocky films so he could make an occasional masterpiece here and there. But Wells, you know, really... Uh, wouldn't make a film as a director unless he deeply cared about it. But he acted in all kinds of terrible stuff. But this is really his uh, the character he identified with the most. Uh, it's easy to see why. And he's impecunious, and he's surrounded by friends. I saw an interview yesterday. It's in the documentary where Wells was asked about betrayal. And this guy said, uh, what's worse, betraying somebody... Uh, because of your principles or because of uh, betraying somebody who is your friend? And he said, oh, well, I think betraying a friend is the worst thing in the world, you know. And, um, well, there you, there you have it, you know. So Wells' performance here is obviously magnificent. You mentioned Keith Baxter's, and I want to come back to that in a second. Uh, are there other performances in the film uh, that you would want to single out. And can I give a shout-out to Margaret Rutherford, who is oh, yeah. fantastic. She's so, as the so wonderful. Yeah, that speech she gives is so great at the end. And 
I don't know if you heard it, you could hear the generator humming. There was a problem with the sound, and, and they just thought her performance was so great, we'll live with the generator humming. Just like Wells sometimes would sacrifice a, a synchronization to a line reading, you know, uh, that was more important to him. But she's a great actress, and, and, and Keith Baxter told me that when she was doing that scene, it was very cold, and Wells said, Keith, go over to her with uh, some coffee with some brandy, and you know, the poor woman is sitting there, and he, he went over to her and he said, are you cold, you know? And she said, oh, no, uh, acting with Orson Welles is like walking where there's always sunshine. It's a <laughs> wonderful moment. Jean Moreau, who Welles loved, and he loved her, and uh, she helped. Uh, she was a really big international star at the time, great actress, uh, plays Dal Tiersheet. And some people criticized him for casting a French actress, but he said, well, Dal, you know, they had a lot of French prostitutes uh, <laughs> in, in that Part of the world in that era, and she's she's there's a, there's a real kind of you feel that personal bond between her and Wells in this film that is very moving, I think. And um, his daughter Beatrice, the youngest daughter, plays his page, um, and she's one of the producers of Other Side of the Wind, and and uh, he had three daughters. And um, now you've said that um, Keith Baxter's Baxter's performance here is the best performance, uh, or one of the best performances yeah. you've seen in a Wells film. Oh, I think he's just so great. I mean, I just love watching his performance, and his line readings are so beautiful, and he's such a, you know, handsome, and, and uh, his, his emotive expressions are just terrific. And, and he's kind of the heart of the film. Wells is very important, but, uh, you know, there, it is the, the Henry ad, they call it, the Henry IV, one and two, and Henry V, and... I, I, went, I like to go to Westminster Abbey when I go to London where they have all the kings and queens buried and I went there a few years ago and I asked the, gar, the, the uh, tour guy, uh, where is Henry V? And he said, go look, he's behind the throne chair. The throne chair is where the monarch sits when he or she is crowned. It's an ancient chair. And there was this little coffin encrusted with dirt sitting there. There was Henry V, you know, how the mighty have fallen. And then the last time I went, they they put him in a nice tomb. Now you know, but uh, everywhere you look in Westminster Abbey, there's a John Ford character or an Orson <laughs> Welles character. You know, I mean they have Mary Queen of Scots and Queen Elizabeth, and you know, um, but but Henry V is a great English hero, and you know it is a matter of interpretation. Is is he a villainous or is he is he a hero? And um, for a long time he was portrayed as a hero, and. Uh, Kenneth Branagh did a good film of this, uh, a bloodier film in which um, Hal doesn't come off too well uh, in that one either, but he's portrayed in a more rousing light. Uh, uh, Lawrence Olivier did Henry V during World War II, which I think is kind of a stupid film. Um, it was kind of a, a war propaganda film uh, designed to appeal to British patriotism. And Wells kind of reacted against that film a lot. He said it looked like... Uh, when they're having a battle scene, they're off in a golf course somewhere charging each other. Can we talk about this battle yeah. scene? This battle scene is one of the greatest uh, action scenes in the history of cinema, and it's unlike anything Wells ever did. He was always trying something new. It seems so fresh and vibrant and, I don't know what, uh, scary today. Yeah. Uh, it must have seemed astonishing in 1966. Well, yeah, I mean, this, wow, we've never seen so. But it's like a Kurosawa scene. Mm. Paul and Kale mentioned Kurosawa and John Ford made great battle scenes. But this was a, a level of bloodiness and uh, ugliness and squalor and, and visceral 
you know, the cutting, he said it was a blow given and a blow received. It's this kind of violent cutting. It took him months to edit that. And I think this film is influenced by the fact that the Vietnam War was going on when Wells made this film. It's an anti-war film, you know. And um, it's just a tremendous scene. I said, how many extras did you have? He, he said with pride, only 280. <laughs> and they shot it in a park in Madrid. And they had 280 guys for the first two or three days, and then, then he could only afford, you know, 30, 40, 20. He was down to like 10 by the end. And he actually shot some of the shots in his apartment. He had this um, big thing where he filled it with mud and water, and those shots of the guy's legs writhing around in the mud, that was done in his apartment, you know. <laughs> and I think that was Keith Baxter's legs, too, you know. So he, he did all kinds of magic with uh, cinema, they had one big set, which was the tavern. Right, which, which he was, designed himself. Yes. He, he designed, and he, he, had, he had gotten to make this film by promising these producers <laughs> that he was going to do Treasure Island at the same time as Chimes of Midnight. Can you believe this? And they thought Treasure Island, of course, would make money and the other one wouldn't. So he said we could use the same tavern for both films. So he conned these guys into making this, and he actually shot a couple days on Treasure Island and then basically abandoned it. And Keith Baxter said, um, you know, like John Gill had arrived and he didn't realize he'd been cast as the squire or whatever in Treasure Island. And you can see bits and pieces of it, but he basically abandoned it. And there were these two young, naive Spanish producers who he ran roughshod over and uh, he got his way. So this production, we have limited, bu- limited budget. We have very limited time with the actors, right? They were only there for oh, a yeah. few weeks. Um, he said whenever an actor's back is to the camera, it's not the actor. <laughs> and you see a lot of scenes, like there's one scene where I think there are eight people with their backs to the camera, none of them are the real actors, they're all doubles. So he had Gilgood for ten days, he had Moreau for a week, I think, and um, you know it, he would just shoot like crazy with Gilgood, and then have, he used doubles for Gilgood occasionally, you can tell, even if you look carefully. And um, he did marvelous tricks, he, he learned to do that after he left Hollywood, where you had all the technical resources when his career collapsed after the Magnificent Ambersons, probably the greatest film ever made, was brutally destroyed by the studio. Um, he went to South America to make a film and forged an entirely new style of shooting on location with uh, some professional performers and, and a lot of non-actors and, and uh, um, you know, all kinds of creative uh, blocking and staging that was not done on the soundstage where he didn't have a crane he didn't have all the apparatus you have in Hollywood. This entire film, by the way, was post-synchronized. And Keith Baxter revealed that they, they um, you know, he liked to shoot rough and ready, and he had like a guide track, and then they would post-sync it. And he, he was very big on sound because he came from the radio, and so he would design the soundtrack in the, in, in the, the you know, the studio. And uh, Baxter actually directed a lot of the actors. I mean, I was directed yesterday by the sound editor on other side of the wind, but I remembered Wells' directions to me, so I was trying to follow what he told me to do. Now, despite all these limitations, limitations of budget, limitations of time, many of the actors on the set describe this as like this, um, one of the more idyllic times they've had making a film, including Gilgood and Baxter. They loved their time spent oh, with Wells. Yeah, the, any, all actors just worship Orson Wells, and um, you know, they would do anything. You know, I, think they, I think Gilgood acted for nothing, and uh, you know, I acted for nothing in other side of the wind. He sent me two boxes of cigars, which I still have, and I treasure those. And uh, I didn't want money. I thought if John Gilgood doesn't get paid, I don't want to get paid. And with me and a few other people, he would give me line readings all the time, and that's considered a big 
no-no with directors. That's insulting to actors. But he would always make a joke of it. He'd always say, it's terrible for a director to give an actor a line reading, but... And then he'd give me the line reading. And I always was really thrilled because I didn't really know how to read these lines, so he, you know, he did them and then I copied him. Uh, but he would do that even with some important actors, and they would get... Uh, you know, he knew how to make fun of it. The thing that all the movies miss about Wells when they show him as a character, like RKO 281 and things like that, he's always portrayed as this kind of dour, uh, grim ogre. And he was totally unlike that on the set. He was a fun guy to work with. He was telling jokes all the time. He, was, he would sing songs from his school plays. He was in a play called Finesse the Queen in 1927, and he would start doing finesse the queen, finesse the queen. And, and he would tell stories. He was a great storyteller, and the laughter was uh, constant. I actually would, my, my face would hurt after an 18-hour 18 18 day of shooting because I would have been smiling and laughing so much my muscles were aching. And uh, that's what it was like. He made it fun for the actors. He was tough on the crew. Um, he was a taskmaster and a perfectionist, but the crew were all like 19, 20-year-old, mostly guys, and they could put up with... Um, the hard work. And the, the long hours, this guy worked really hard. This is contrary to the myth. He worked 18, 20 hours a day. And um, on Shines of Midnight, uh, Keith Baxter said they had a, in the town square, they had a big wooden table, and they'd have lunch, and then Wells would climb up on the table and lie down and take a nap <laughs> for an hour or so in his Falstaff costume. And they'd, then they'd wake him up and and he'd go to work, and uh, they all thought that was kind of funny. But they had a, a wonderful time. It was just uh, like a, a floating party to be in a Wells film. Now, yeah, you mentioned how funny he was in person. He thought that his Falstaff didn't end up being as funny as he thought he would have been. Yeah. There's a really melancholy note to the performance and to the film, and a really strong element of nostalgia in the film. And we, we think yeah. of Wells as a kind of iconoclastic filmmaker. Uh, how do you sort of... Uh, square that nostalgia with our sense of him as this iconoclast. Well, he felt the two closest films to his heart were Amberson's and this one because they, they're a lament for a lost epoch. Hmm. And in America, how uh, the old America was killed by the coming of industrialization and the automobile destroyed the values of our culture. And in this film, he, he said it's merry old England, which is a myth. He admitted that this never existed. But that's part of the attraction of it, is that it's this kind of fantasy of what life should have been like. And it's destroyed by the, you know, uh, Prince Hal becomes this beady-eyed and self-regarding king, is what he called him. And uh, the modern kind of uh, warrior and technocrat takes over, and uh, they don't have a place for a guy like Falstaff who's just enjoying life. And, and well said he's like a hippie, you know, he's an early hippie. And um, he's just, you know, a, a man who just has a good time. And uh, all that was lost and, and gone, and Wells is lamenting that. So there isn't a deep nostalgia for, for, in Wells for... Uh, uh, usually people are nostalgic for the period right before they were born, you know, the period of their parents' lives, and Wells kind of had that. But he had, he had a tremendous uh, love of the uh, Middle Ages. That's, as I said, that's why he liked Spain so much. He didn't like the modern world at all. And... Um, he made a couple of documentaries on the Basque country, which really deal with that theme a lot. Cause he loved the Basque people because they resist the modern world and they have their own language and they don't think they believe, belong to any particular country. And he liked that kind of attitude. He liked independence so much. And Falstaff is an independent. 
Um, he's, he's a kind of a hanger-on of the court, but he does things his own way, and Wells admired that, and he's always broke, and he's kind of scrabbling for money, and, and uh, has patrons who keep him going, etc., but it's all very tenuous. So it is a sad story, and he said the more I played it, it was uh, a tragedy. That He said, I don't think much of the scenes in which I'm merely funny. And the, the, the film is full of farewells, as you notice, constant farewells and motifs of people walking away or riding away. And John Ford does that all the time. Uh, Ford is a deeply melancholy filmmaker, and there are constant arrivals and departures in Ford films. And, and this is a very Fordian film. It really reminds you of a lot of uh, Ford films, Stagecoach and other ones. You know. So thank you. Uh, if only we had his, had his leer. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Can we can we thank Joseph McBride one more time? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Those were great questions, and I really appreciate your uh, being such a great host and uh, questioner, and and everybody here for having yeah, me as a guest. Coming. Thank you thank for you. coming. Thanks for being a good audience. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.